Hello there. Welcome to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality, delving into the palm-powered world of herbalism. So do you know your echinacea from your eleutherococcus, or your polyphenol from your polysaccharides? Whether you're a budding herbalist, an inquisitive health professional, or a botanical beginner, Herbcast is here to inform and inspire you on your journey to integrating herbs in our everyday lives. So settle down, turn us up, and let's start today's episode of the Herbal Reality Herbcast. Hello, welcome everybody to our next Herbcast. It's my great pleasure to spend time now with a neighbour of mine, Robin Harford, who, how would we describe him, a forager extraordinaire, man about the hedges, uh, and a great proponent of plant power, particularly wild plant power. Welcome, Robin. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. It's good to be on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. Yes, well, we can talk more about your experiences with the microphone later. Um, so you and I, we did uh, field trips together, the wild food, wild medicine, the uh, and just to show people how much they could gather within the confines of, of a city, Exeter in this case, a city boundaries. Um, and, you know, it reminded me that field trips are among the most exciting learning experiences. And I'm, getting, I'm really keen to hear how you, how you do these and how you get on with them and where you go. Um, we also have, uh, in, among our audience, practitioners who often collect from the wild, and we know that still a large proportion of the herbs that are used commercially are gathered from the wild. So it would be really helpful if you can give us some guidance as to best practice here, what we should be doing, um, how we should be respecting the countryside, and indeed some of the ways in which we can get benefit from the her- herbs and the plants we gather. Um, and also taken with your wider interest here, and I'm, I was struck by a, a, a quote that uh, my colleague Joe Weber at Pucker picked up, in which you wrote, um, This ancient path of the forager reconnects us to the vital, to wildness, to creation. One of the most direct ways to experience this is to consume this wildness, take it into our bodies, where, like a sleeper agent, it lies dormant until you have eaten enough to change the structures of your blood and your brain and how you relate to the non-human world. I mean, that strikes me, Robin, as a fairly radical uh, sentiment there. And so it would be great to hear, you know, your wider visions here for the, for our relationship to plants. So, first of all, I mean, as always is the case, I'm really interested to hear how you came here. What's your life story relative to this world that you're following this foraging world and this world cool okay so i grew up in the countryside i was a country boy i my great aunt who i would spend the summers with were down in painted in devon um hence why i'm now live in devon it's a bit of kind of reclaiming my my past history family history and they were they were great Devonians. The family lineage was uh, land people, basically farmers. And they would take me onto Dartmoor when I was a nipper. And with my Aunt Joan, she'd get me gathering bilberries. And then my Aunt Doris 
she would take me down to the rock pools um, we would go mackerel fishing etc etc uh, countryside was always around plants were always around I like loads of people I had um, an uncomfortable childhood let's put it that way and I saw the sanctuary in nature and nature was always there for me um, nature was a safe place and we used to gather things like wild garlic when I was at, at school, uh, sweet chestnuts I remember vividly in the woods during breaks off gathering the sweet chestnuts, um, blackberries, other stuff, wild garlic when I was 16 as a kid trying to cover up the smell of smoking cigarettes. So nature's been around eating very small amounts of wild plants was around just by default of being in the countryside uh we didn't call it foraging then we it was just what country people did country children did then i disappeared into cities and followed that route and disconnected and eventually ended up at the beginning of the internet um working just stupid hours 12 15 hour days seven days a week five years burnt out needed to get out so got out of the city came down to the countryside with my daughter and my partner and needed to take time out properly i made enough money to allow me to kind of just not work really for three years and didn't have any hobbies at all facebook had just come on stream and i went to the hobbies section i didn't have any they were just making money and learning how to make more money um, which was a pretty sad existence to be honest um i got myself a pretty healthy addiction by then with alcohol and recreational substances and knew that i had to sort myself out so i would wake up and just take the dog for a walk and i just see this green wall and I was curious. I'm a very, very curious person. So I started picking the odd plant, bringing them back, went down to the local library, pulled all the books out, went through them page by page, because at that stage I didn't even know that a plant belonged to a particular family, so it would have been a lot easier just to go to the family section. But through that immersion, just was fascinated that most of the plants I'd been picking had been used as medicine at some point. And then there were these odd references to food. And I've always been a foodie. And even in the 80s, I wrote a little book on raw food veganism, um, which was quite interesting. No, I wouldn't have encouraged anyone to be vegan in the 1980s because you could barely get an avocado. So being a foodie i was fascinated and i just wanted to explore more of the food side the medicine side was really important again in the 80s when i was the raw food vegan partner was doing herbal medicine um kind of weekend courses with people in bristol um and i just went deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole and this whole world opened up that i'd never other than the bits and bobs we'd like wild garlic or a bit of nettle here and there or a few blackberries i just it, it was it was vast what i was discovering and my fascination has always been not just britain but also global cultures and when i go and travel i experience cultures through their food because um, it's a really quick way into becoming embedded with local people 
As I tell you, travelled a bit, Robin. Whereabouts other than the Britain have you been that's relevant? Relevant Africa, Southeast Asia a lot, and India a fair amount. Uh, Southeast Asia and India is predominantly where I've picked up um, and sat with traditional cultures, not for very long. I'm not making any claims that I've lived with them. Um, But enough to observe and see how they would go foraging, how their relationship with the plants in the forest, how there was this kind of dynamic that would go on, and some very, very curious discussions have come out of that. What I like about traveling, so let's say I was in Greece recently, so there's a there's plantain, we all know plantago species, and this local showed me plantain and they were telling me a way to work with plantain that I've never come across in Britain. So one of the things I like is that being cross-cultural, I, I get these little snippets of how other cultures have used the same plant or maybe at least the same uh, a plant in the same genus um, in a way that we might not have done and that fascinates me because I, I refer to myself as an ethnobotanical researcher so ethnobotany is the study of the relationship of plants and people and how we have helped each other through millennia and I just find that the little tidbits from other cultures develops a really rounded picture of a plant but more than that is the human story as well i'm fascinated by stories i'm fascinated by the metaphor that plants and the act of foraging um, shines a light on how we might live Um, a lifestyle philosophy i suppose is what one comes to because there was a time when when most of well, half the community would have been foraging as, as their daily activity. Very much. And the more we've um, become static, as in agrarian, uh, not making any judgment on that, it's just fact, we became farmers. Um, and the more we had to hoard and store it was a different worldview to the nomadic hunter-gatherer, from my understanding. Yes, exactly. Uh, you mentioned plantain as an example. I don't know if there's something that, you know, because most of our audience would know something about plantain. They will use it in one form or another. I mean, what sort of uh, uh, insights did you gather in Greece that, you know, just as an example of the the richness of some of these stories okay so just the simple there's two sides to the plantain story one is the medicine which i'm not here to teach you folks about medicine because you're the medical people or the medicine people rather Um, i'm the food person um, even though there is a kind of venn diagram where food and medicine interface obviously uh, certainly with wild plants don't know so much about monocultured farm plants so in greece i met um some some guys who actually were the only people who had the time to to show me some plants and start talking plants because they were deeply into them themselves and one of them said oh i said oh i've just made a sun oil with plantain because the mosquitoes were out and i was getting bitten my partner was getting bitten and i just wanted something to soothe them and 
they went, oh, oh, no, locally what we do is we have the sun oil, which you're talking about, but we also have this cold oil where we put plantain into oil and we just leave it in the cupboard, but we drink that as for our digestion. We take it as a medicine for our digestion. Now, I've come back and asked some herbal friends, do they know anything about that? And they've told me they don't. I don't know whether you do, Simon. Have you heard this before? Well, we would use plantain um, as often a respiratory agent. You know, it's got, uh, some of them have got mucilage in them. There's plantain lanceolata with the ribwort, which is often yeah. used for respiratory things. But, you know, any plant with a mucilage in it is going to have some benefits for the digestion because it soothes, doesn't it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what they were doing. Were they? There was. That's that's what that's what they were doing. But also, the other thing is that I went out with another chap, and interestingly, it was the men I was going out with because normally it's the women I'm going out with, especially in Europe. It's the old grand grandmothers, um, and. And this guy, there we are in this bright, really hot, it's like 30 degrees, and he's getting um, a sow thistle, smooth sow thistle. And I mean, this thing is really, really had to struggle. And he's cutting this out. He goes, no, we just, well, this is horta, you know, it's part of horta. And it's like, okay, well, I know what horta is. It's like wild greens that have been boiled out. And I'm looking at this thing, and it, and it just dawned on me how, how twee we are in Britain. And I've noticed this in, in a lot of other cultures where the wild plants are part of their culture. There's, they're not an option. <laughs> yeah, They're not a hobby. They are what they have to use. And over here, you know, if we, <laughs> if we go our south, so we want it picked in shade and we want it all lovely and supple and tender. And no, this thing was like leather <laughs> and fibrous. And and tough and really, uh, it, it they boil it for twenty minutes. And so you know, everybody's like, "Oh, you can't boil anything for twenty minutes." That's like nineteen seventies cooking. And it's like, no, they boil it for twenty minutes because there's a reason they boil it for twenty minutes in order to make it palatable. And by that, it sounds like the south thistle is a revolting plant in Greece to eat, and it's not at all. It's just a different process, and. Actually, the med the south thistle that's had to grow in that harshness, whatever the medicine of south thistle is, which I can't pull off the top of my head. Um, well, presumably it's uh, like other thistles; it'll have sort of uh, liver, re- liver and digestive properties. When okay, uh, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not the most attractive looking food, is it? Look- no, uh, but over here it's. I, I mean, I put it up there as as one of the top plants. If you if you gather it, cor- it here I am. I'm saying if you gather it correctly. Now that's coming from my understanding of gathering plants in the British climate, but in Greece that's reframed just the south thistle. So I'm actually looking now at kind of traditional European uh, Mediterranean recipes and and seeing their cooking times because there is something definitely there and you might say oh but if you're cooking it that long it's losing all its nutrition and and it's not because a lot of the time they're also drinking the liquid they're not just throwing it out and if it hasn't completely reduced right down so it becomes more like um, a sauce yeah, well, there's uh, a precedence in Asia to cook herbs for a long time to get the benefits out of them. Uh, obviously, what you get, as you said, is a different 
uh, extraction with a lot of heating and cooking. But there's no doubt that it has value. Yeah, it's just I just I really I'm kind of done. I've worked with some of the you know some some pretty high end Michelin chefs, and and as much as that's an art form in its own right, and I have the greatest respect for it, you're not going to do it when you've worked eight ten hours, you know in the checkout or in the factory and you want to come back and you want some food and you, you haven't got three hours to make it some kind of nectar teardrop out of birch sap now as much as that's great but that it's also no one's going to do it so my way of cooking is really looking at a lot of these more land-centric cultures and seeing how simply they prepare food because wild plants when you get the right um, if you pick at the right time, are, are some extraordinary flavours. So they don't need a lot of jazz. And we're not creating art either. We're feeding ourselves. And and to me, this is not something... It was a bit like when I went to North Carolina. Um, the medicine people there, the, the herbalists there, were, you know, they, they, it, it reframed again my, my thinking about herbalism because they're in the, in the Appalachian mountains. You know, they... They have herbal medicine because there is no NHS. It, it, their knowledge is coming from what I call real world. I mean, it's coming from everyday life. They don't have a support network um, or a safety net. So it, it's a different quality of knowledge to what we have over here. And I just, for me, it's really important, especially with climate changes that are coming community resilience that's really important in a culture that seems to be completely fragmenting that coming together gathering foods and gathering medicines is a deeply healing and satisfying and enjoyable way to experience life and simple and free yeah you don't need a college degree you don't need a phd to be a forager you just need to start learning plants so who, who you run you've run foraging courses and outings for a long time now uh, who, who who comes who turns up and, and, and what what are they getting out of this okay so my philosophy of charging is charge as much as you can get which might irk a few people but you will always exclude people as soon as you start charging so my argument is if you've got a community heart then you charge a decent amount that pays your bills and then you can give it back to the community in whatever way that is so the people that come are generally uh, middle-aged my age i mean i'm not one of those young instagram um people so because of my age i attract generally middle-aged people although i have to say uh this year it's been a real mix from 20 somethings right through to 60 somethings um and a few getting into the 70 somethings and i keep the groups small now i used to teach 25 to 30 people but I just want to be able to impart the information in a very dynamic and engaged way. And I can't do that with 30 people. I become a talking head. And I have three hours, roughly, to download a specific toolkit that I hand people that they can then go away with and work in, with immediately with the plants that they find locally where they are. So people come on my events thinking that they're most likely going to get a talking head which they do in part 
but also thinking that I'm going to enlighten them about you know how to make the the, the most tastiest wild garlic pesto which I'm going to but there's more than that because yes in the early days when I started it was all about that now there's something else going on and I'm still trying to qualify what that is I think you most probably touched on it when you read that bit of inspired writing that I wrote I don't know how long ago that was maybe four years ago three years ago um, that I, I'm very interested in how we use language because language changes our worldview language changes our relationship with ourselves with each other and with the wider community and in the wider community I also mean the non-human community and so feeding you're coming to learn how to feed yourself well what are we talking here yes there's physical plant matter in your mouth into your stomach great you have a really nice time you sit with friends you break bread you celebrate but then there's also feeding on emotional levels and feeding on mental levels um, and some people tell me that they get fed on a spiritual level so you define that how you want I don't really talk about that side that's for people to explore themselves but definitely the physical the emotional and the mental well-being sides that is feeding holistically it's not just physical matter it's not just energy food going in there's something else going on and there's a dance and then there's a real specialness to getting up and walking out your front door whether you live in a city or you live in the countryside or you live in the liminal spaces in between you can find wild food plants and start with drinking them and seeing what happens because it does it does like that saying like that quote you read out it does change your understanding of yourself and the world in a deep way presumably you know you're tasting as you go and you're encouraging them to nibble their leaves also um presumably what we're talking about is uh, experience at a different level we're not talking with our we're not seeing things with our brains and working them out like we would from a book or a, uh, some presentation you know on screen or whatever we're now having to rely on our nose and our tongue and uh, and we're often exploring a finding taste that we've never found before and they're sometimes quite shocking aren't they so um so i are you sort of starting your education from you know the the old instinctive skills of nosing and tasting and so on i'm absolutely teaching it from that level because when i grew up as a kid i was not academically um <laughs> at the front of the class let's put it that way uh my brain didn't work the way the educational system wanted to teach me and so when I started landing plants, the idea of... I opened up Stacy's Wild Flacky and just froze. And it's like, really? Is this what I'm going to have to put my brain into in order to learn plants? And of course, you know, from traveling, I realized that, you know, there's not a single botanist about amongst any of the plant people I've been, in, been meeting. So what's going on there? And also, oh, by the way, botanists. Yeah, that's kind of a modern creation, isn't it? And actually, when you go into some cultures, they will show you a plant... Plantago lanceolata, let's put that, pluck that out. It's not an ideal example. Um, show you it in the morning and go, this is the food and the medicine of it. And then in the afternoon, they'll show it to you again and you'll call out and go, it's the same plant, but you're giving me different uses. Yes, there's a reason. Yeah, Linnaeus 
couldn't go granular enough. Plants are beings, and they all have a, a different response. Yes, it reminds me of an experience I had in Africa where I was went out to what was then Rhodesia, gives me a bit of my age, uh, and went to the Botanic Gardens in uh, the capital uh, to pick a sample of a plant. It was a request from a colleague in the UK, and then went off to see a, a farmstead and a, um, a, a community out on the countryside, and I still had the sample in my pack. Um, so I saw there was a tree um, with that, the same tree, with the same botanical species was there in the middle of the uh, village. And there was a, a woman there that I was being introduced to. So I pulled my uh, uh, thing out of the bag very botanically proud and said, can you tell me, you know, what do you use this for, you know, and she didn't recognize it. So I said, no, it's the same tree as over there. And she says, no, it's not. Ah. And I think that sort of feeds what you're saying, that there's a different sort of knowledge base, isn't there? There is, but very, very definitely. You did ask the prior to that about tasting and nosing and smelling. I mean, because I don't, I do teach botany. I teach the scientific name, right? And I strongly encourage people to go and look up and get their head around wildflower keys. But the quickest way, if I put hemlock poisonous plant obviously well not obviously uh, poisonous plant side by side to cow parsley very edible plant to the untrained eye it's going to take you ages to figure out the differences unless someone is really pointing it out to you and but if you just crush a little bit and smell they are like different planets literally so i i the first 20 minutes of my teaching practice I just download this toolkit and the toolkit is the body so botany has been described as the pattern method of plant identification it's I it's literally just I which is why I was quite in intrigued by I think I said to you the other day Simon that you know when on the herbal reality site you also um, you're including other sensory uh, keys I suppose so we have the eyes and then we have the touch and then we have the sound and then we have the smell and then we have the nibble and in Devon we have this wonderful word called dimpsy which is kind of dusk time and I've been into the edges of woods when it's dimpsy and my eyes aren't able to see correctly what the plant is but I, all I have to do is go down touch and smell and I know I've got the right plant or not and it's so important this prime what I call the sensory method of plant identification when I was in um, North Carolina in Appalachia my botanical far more botany than I am um, and the ethnobots there referred to me as a sensory botanist so I key out a plant using my body and it's the most um, this, it, I find it fascinating because while I'm actually very present you have to be very present you can't be worrying about the past or thinking about the future you've got to be right here right now you know, it's embodied you've got to be in your body not off in your head and I have this statement um, get out of your head come to your senses and it is literally to inflame our senses, turn the volume up of our senses. And the only way to do that is to is to use them. And even if you don't eat a plant every single day, then at least pause, breathe for a moment in your crazy life 
and observe a plant and pick a little bit, tiny, tiny little bit, because you don't want too much, and just smell it. Smell it. And if you do that on a daily practice, as a daily practice, not only is it good for your stress levels, because it's like a, it's like a, a pause, a, a mindfulness break, you are turning that volume up and you'll notice some some odd things over time as you know you're smelling things in the air you become primal i mean i'm not going to go rewilding but this is primal knowledge that we this is how we work with plants in the past when i the only time that this was so no one had taught me this i had to learn this myself i have as a kid have always smelled things it's just my default and when i was in burma or Myanmar, if you want to do that name, if you support military government. Um, if you support the indigenous people, tribal people, we call it Burma still. And so in Burma, with the Karen, I'm going out, and they're doing this massive sensory practice. This is what they're doing. And it was at that point that I realised that I wasn't completely nuts, that the, what I was actually teaching is really, really valuable and is the way that some cultures still work with plants and we make the point in our herbal reality monographs that actually taste particularly leads us on to directly understanding their pharmacology because uh, the taste buds and the sensory f uh, uh, the, the sensory signal sent from the mouth and the upper gullet and so on are actually hardwired to do things so we know obviously we know about bitters and acrids and sours and astringents and so on these translate directly into actual medicinal benefits so you know it's another good reason to use our nose and our, our, sen our senses to work our way through uh, the materia medica so yeah th it, it's an important lesson that we can keep learning isn't it very much and there's another quality of when we start working with the body in that way um, that I don't really see talked about much but it's it's always fascinated me where's creativity and inspiration come from and by being present and working with our senses our sensory body oftentimes emergence can happen and so the way that I describe this is that imagine that you're sitting by a pool on a summer's day and it's slightly windy and the surface of the pond is choppy as a result then imagine a bubble breaking from beneath the surface in the mud and it starts trickling its way up to the top when it breaks it's quite hard to see that bubble because of the choppiness of the surface if the pond is still and the surface is still and calm and a bubble trickles up from the bottom and breaks the surface chances are you're going to see it that's a metaphor analogy don't know which word it is that reflects on how your internal state when you gather and when you meet plants needs to be you don't want a turbulent surface water you want a still calm pool because that bubble that breaks is emergence happening in that moment and that emergence can be a signal for how to work with that plant I can't explain it any more than just that analogy. All I know is that when it first started happening to me, and I'm not talking woo here at all, this is just creative inspiration. 
when it first started happening to me, I didn't believe it. I didn't trust it. My head went, that's just rubbish. But the more and more I started working with it, the more I trusted it, the more it validated itself. It's very peculiar. So I'm, I'm referring to that in how do we use a plant for food? The same process occurs with medicine, as you well know, Simon. But with food, it's like, okay, so you've got a plant and you're crushing it and you're smelling it and you're getting this memory, this reminder. Ah, it reminds me of pee. Well, if it reminds you of pee, then go and work with it either to replace pee or to pair with a pee. So... The more we do this, the more we realize we don't need cookbooks, we don't need the experts, we don't need any of that stuff. We actually are kind of our own authorities at that level. Now, I'm not talking being foolhardy and, you know, I've had people go, oh, I really want to nibble hemlock water drop word. It's like, please don't. So when the inspiration comes in, then you need to go and validate it in the at hard data. Yeah. So I'll give you another example. I was down on the estuary one year and I was doing my mindful practice and my sensory practice. And I suddenly noticed red campion all over the place, like all over the place. It was like, whoa, okay, what's happening here? Why, why am I picking up on red campion? So in that moment, it was like food. Okay, there's something here in my bones. It felt food. I didn't act in the moment. I've never really paid much attention to red campion. It's a little pink flower. I'm quite a gruff, rough around the edges kind of bloke. So it didn't really appeal at that time. So I went and looked through the ethnobotanical record and I found a research paper from the 1990s done by an ethnobotanist in a little village in the northeast region of Friuli. And there he noted down a little ritual that the villagers did in springtime, which was to go out and gather 50 to 60 wild plants, come back, fry them up and serve them as a celebratory meal, a kind of welcoming of spring. Being a good ethnobotanist, he'd listed all the scientific names of all those species. Red campion was in there. And white campion. We have bladder campion in our wild food records. So it's not a huge leap. But that's how I work with plants. If I don't know them, often I'll get that instinctive flash but I won't act in the moment because that's just that that would just be dumb you know I'm I'm a modern 21st century human I'm I'm still barely out of the womb with this sensory stuff but there is no doubt that not only from my own personal experience and I always try and bring everything down to terra firma boots on the ground and hard data there is no doubt that there is this emergence the principle that that happens when we gather and are attentive rather than rather than gathering for money or gathering because we need to get like 500 kilos of plants in before the season's over because we've got to sell them on ebay or something that's that just destroys the relationship when it's you and plant for your own personal use of food or your own personal use of medicine i'm not talking about harvest gathering for clinics or whatever i'm talking about your personal dynamic with the plant Curiosity happens and this emergence principle takes me deeply into, into the mystery of creation, like I said in that opening piece. Yeah. 
No, that's really helpful. That's very insightful too, Robin. Thank you. Uh, I mean, it 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 reminds us that we do really want to open our senses in this work of ours. Um, just uh, to, um, a sort of practical point, um, a lot of people, as you say, uh, do get enthused by this. Um, and, you know, our, our herbal colleagues will sometimes go and gather for their own dispensary and wild gathering. Um, are there sort of, st- sort of quick guidelines that we should be aware of, you know, in terms of how much to pick and where to pick and things that you would tell us not we shouldn't really be doing um well in the ideal world i suppose the patient um clinician relationship would be you take them out and they gather their own plants with you there that'd be part of the medicine wouldn't it okay so if you're gathering this your for yourself for your own clinical practice then obviously it, it has to be massive abundance of that plant i'm i'm really quite harsh on this one and i'm i'm a bit of an outlier so take it with a pinch of salt or not and for me gathering is for today and for tomorrow and there's i i mean i don't think we have time to go into the reasons for that but it feeds into the original humans you know how we gathered as nomadic hunter gatherers where we didn't have that option to hoard and store so in the modern world if you need plants gather the ones that there's lots of them that you know people are spraying and trying to get rid of there's yarrow i'm looking out i went to look, try and get some yarrow today because i have a patch and and typical council have come in and they've sprayed around these um trees fruit trees that they're growing and of course it's like the arrows off limits because it's been sprayed there's lots of dogs i really yeah i live on the edge of a city i don't want to be gathering dog in dog infested plants so you've got to find your clean spaces and there are lots of them in city spaces cemeteries are quite good places to gather plants although there is often an argument about the old lead caskets and what are the plants uptaking but you know we live in a pretty polluted world as it is and needs must um the bsbi say no more than five percent so the bsbi is the botanical society of britain and ireland say no more than five percent of a plant community because this this one of the things i i have issues with with the with um which is why we need to grow these plants i suppose in a wildish kind of way is that it you know we're not just the only species that uses these plants I started doing the etymology for some of the plants on my eatweeds.co.uk site and that you know some of these plants have like 50 different insects and moths and bugs and it's like wow this this is an ecology that uh, I've still got decades to, to really truly understand so clean spaces not too much gather only the plants that are really really in abundance you know gather your nettles gather your dandelions gather your yarrow they're they're prolific gather your daisy they're prolific um yes i mean um, part the you know the sort of counter to what you're saying is that of course plants are also very seasonal and if you're looking to provide uh, stock through the lean months of the year you need to gather and de-drive plants to um to keep them over the uh, uh 
over the Hungary gaps. Um, the, the presumably, um, this the, well, and without without question, the same rule applies. You go, go for abundance, and you don't take more than five percent of the available material. Yeah, yeah, and at the moment we're getting kind of hammered by the by um, the media. You know, foraging was built up as good media's do. They build something up and make it the golden child, and then they choose to annihilate it. So we're kind of in the annihilation phase with foraging. Most of the media stories are not very um, positive, and actually, most of those media stories they're hysterical because they're coming from a complete lack of understanding of ecology. That's the frustration, I suppose, for me. Is that well, to like the gathering of mushrooms, right? You know, they're, and they're coming really racist. I mean, it was really interesting when you kind of had the Daily Mail hysterics kicking off at oh, it's the East Europeans in in the New Forest nicking all our mushrooms for their you know selling them to the restaurants and. And actually, the Association of Foragers, of which I'm a part of, uh, actually really challenged the New Forest on this, the authorities. And we got the books and the rangers out. And there wasn't East Europeans. It's a complete racist script. It's appalling. Um, there were people gathering mushrooms. Yeah, but once the thing's fruited, it's already spored. So it's not, with mushrooms specifically, it's not a problem to gather a lot. And there's a lot of research from other countries that they've explored. So... Unfortunately, you have old conservationists and new conservationists. The old conservationists believe that in this in this really racist colonial principle called wilderness. So anything, any anytime anyone's talking wilderness, you know you're kind of talking to the enemy, um, because wilderness came out of John Muir's idol. You know, talk about. Oh, I mean, everyone loves him, but I don't. The guy was not nice. He would frame and take pictures. And in his actual diaries, he wrote, and we had to wait for the foul stinking beast to get out of the way. Now, I say on my course, I, courses, I say to people, well, what do you think the foul stinking beasts were? And people go, oh, buffalo? I was like, no, no, Native Americans. There you go. That's wilderness for you. And there's a lot of um, indigenous people who are really coming back on, on our use of this language. But And remember what I said at the beginning of this talk or interview, that language frames our world view so i am really you know this thing of like oh i want to restore connection to nature i want to be more connected to nature well you've already separated yourself out by your language indigenous people don't talk about that they see themselves as already part of nature they are nature there is no nature so i don't know how we how we deal with that one in moving forwards i'm i like um poetry so I'm sure I'll come up with some alternative word for for nature. So when I hear people saying, "I, you know, I'm coming foraging because I want to learn food and I want to connect more with nature," I'm not hearing that. What I'm hearing is that they're wanting to feel, because in order to feel, to in order to be connected with the rest of nature, I have to feel it. It can't be an intellectual thing. I can't read it or watch a film or be told, oh, yes, you're connected to nature. I have to be empathically, viscerally. It has to be a felt sense. Foraging and gathering plants gives us that felt sense. The amount of gratitude that I've been feeling recently, I don't know why, it's just been coming in, in my body. It's quite overwhelming, actually. And that's where the medicine is. The medicine is right there in that gathering process. 
you know, we've gone through COVID. We have a massive mental health crisis. For the authorities to be telling us that we shouldn't be going foraging and stuff, it's just, just nuts. This is the very thing, as Miles Richardson, who's one of the big kind of ecotherapist scientific researchers up i think he's in he's in one of the northern universities you know all the data is there the data is that we have to be have access to green spaces you know we got this twit on dartmoor who's trying to shut down wild camping the only place in england that we can actually wild camp and he's trying to shut it down and this is this feeds into this thing of like you he wants to make it wilderness he doesn't want the people there so the old conservation model is remove the humans from the rest of the ecosystem and let nature regrow crazy that one or the new conservation model which is parks near people you know the the best people to be conserving the countryside are the people who live in it not the urbanites telling us what we should be doing it's the urbanites who are telling us we should be removed from the ecosystem yeah no it's very powerful as well robin and it's a it's a really uh, deep thought for us all you know that nature is not another it's 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 something that we nurture within ourselves as well as everything else uh, that we need to do for ourselves thank you so much for that i, I want to again a minute or so left for you know, let you tell us more about where find out more about what you do and uh you know where, where to go for more well what I have is um, I have this website called eatweeds.co.uk, which I started in 2008, just as a diary, really, of what I was doing. Um, and I ended up being this foraging teacher. I uh, never intended it. So over the, the years, I've written a few books. You'll find them on that website. But the new project that's just about to be launched is a thing called Special Plant Project, because I'm kind of at this place whereby that is, I, I, I just, you know, how much do I give away for free and how much do I hold back? And and I'm holding back more than, than I should. And I want to be sharing that and I want to be teaching people, local people, where they find their feet to be plant ambassadors and to go out and teach their community because... This stuff is life-saving. You know, I'm a fo- you know this, Simon. Um, I'm a former drug and alcohol addict at quite an extreme level. And foraging and gathering plants and immersing myself in the wild places with um, our plant allies is one of the reasons I'm alive. And so I want to teach people in their communities what I already know, the things we've been talking about and encourage them to teach. And I'm not one of these people that thinks that you need to know 50 plants before you can start teaching plants. That's absolute rubbish. You know, one of my plant mentors who you knew as well was Frank Kirk. And Frank said, if you know one plant really well, go out and teach it to your community. But don't step outside your knowledge base you know don't if you know a plant you know it teach what you know not what you think you know well said so thank you robin and just to remind everybody eatweeds.co.uk to find out more about robin does and thank you so much for spending your time with us on herbal reality today on our next on our new herbcast series thank you so much robin for your time thank you very much simon it's been a joy 
You've been listening to The Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating. That would really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. We'll learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. We'll be back with another episode of The Herbcast soon. Thanks for joining. Thank you.